Okay, let's get this web conference underway. We'll get started with a karakia. Una hia te pō te pō where marama. Tamakia te ao te ao whatatangata. Tātai ki ronga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahuro, umie, huie, Tēnā koutou katoa, greetings everyone, haere mai, and welcome to the Matariki and Navigation Field Trip. I'm Shelley, the Learns Field Trip Teacher, and it's 9.15am on the 13th of June, Thursday morning. Um, and we've had a very exciting field trip so far. At the moment, we are at the Nelson Marine Institute of Technology, and I'd like to introduce you to a couple of our guests, you might remember Brad from yesterday from Land Information New Zealand who has travelled through with us this morning from Picton and we've got Chris from the Institute. Um, guys, I'll just get you to tell us a little bit about your work. We'll start with Chris. Morena, um, Chris Lord and uh, tutor here at the um, Maritime College, uh, Master Mariner, um, number of years driving um, uh, ferries across Cook Strait and nowadays uh, teaching here at the school, teaching people to drive ships. Fantastic. Kia ora, Chris. Fred. Hi. Hi, guys. Um, I'm a hydrographic surveyor with Land Information New Zealand, and so we produce the paper charts and the electronic navigation charts for New Zealand. It's the charting authority, so that's what we're talking about today. And we learned a little bit about the traditional methods that uh, Captain Cook used from Brad yesterday. He showed us how to use a sextant, and um, to do a running survey, plotting the coast. I was um, in great admiration of those skills because um, those sort of navigational skills have always gone way over my head. <laughs> um, and especially out at sea. So it was great to, to find out more about that. And you can watch the videos about that, which will be online for you today. And of course, uh, the videos for today, you might be able to see behind us, I lift up my laptop, you can see some screens. And in the other room next to us, we actually have a simulator. So it's a maritime navigation simulator. So people learning how to be skippers and, and uh, navigators and so forth can pilot that simulator. Um, Chris, how many, how many hours would somebody spend on a simulator? Um, we try and um, spend as much time as we can during that course. They might be here for maybe uh, three or four months and uh, maybe spend uh, maybe a month of that time on the simulator. Very good. So uh, good to be able to use a simulator rather than the real thing to start with. Sure. It's safer. Sure, it's great. Um, yep, the consequences aren't near, nearly as serious here in the simulator as they are in the real world. Good use of technology and with us this morning we also have our ambassadors we've got quite a crew so we've got Tiaki from St Joseph School we have got Border Holly from Nightstream School and we have got Maya very good name from Pukukhoi Kiri the Kiriru from St Albans and Tidy Kiwi from Morrinsville School and of course the cheeky Learns Ambassador Maya as well. So you can find out what those guys have been up to on their little updates on the website and 
big welcome to everybody this morning. It's great to see lots of schools still on board with our field trip, asking lots of questions, um, inquiring lots into Matariki and navigation. So hopefully we'll be able to answer all your questions this morning. We'll do our best. We'll start with our speaking schools. A big welcome to uh, oh, are our schools this morning. We've got Matoda Primary School and Island Schools. So great to have you guys asking questions this morning. And when you come up to ask your question, nice and loudly, and if you can say your first name, that helps us to know who we're talking to. So we'll start with uh, Matoda Primary School. Can we have question number one, please? Uh, I'm Dion, and how do people make the shipping lanes that ships travel along? Good question. Chris? Sure. So there's an international body called the IMO, International Maritime Organization. They make the rules uh, globally for the maritime area. And um, so places that are really busy, they um, put shipping lanes in those places, and it's uh, by international agreement. So good that we've got that international um, agreement, those, those rules, so everybody knows what's happening, even if they're in a different country. Great question to start, thank you. And now we'll move to question one from Island School, please. Uh, hello, my name is Harsh. How do you see modern marine technology moving forward from where it is now? Mm, good question, Harsh. Sure, so um, we're in an age that um, technology is moving on rapidly and um, there's lots of developments happening, things changing. Um, we're now moving into the area where we're going to have something called autonomous ships. Uh, autonomous meaning uh, it operates on its own, doesn't need anyone to, to drive it. And um, currently uh, in a country called Norway, they're building uh, an autonomous ship to the, the world's first, to a container ship to operate on its own. And that's where, um, where our world is going to, ships that drive themselves. Wow, that's incredible. And last year we had a look at a self-driving car on um, a Land Information New Zealand field trip, just like this one. Um, and that was pretty impressive as well. So all that satellite GPS technology that's helping with self-driving cars and sounds like self-driving ships as well. Sure. Mm, very good. And question number two now from Matoto, please. Hi, my name is Harley. Is a GPS better than a map or do you need both of them? Harley, well done. So uh, GPS and maps, or uh, in nautical speak, we call them charts, um, work hand in hand. You need uh, GPS to give you your position and then you need uh, your map or chart to be able to, to uh, work out where you're gonna go next. Mm, and I know that when I'm trying to navigate in the backcountry, um, I don't I don't actually use GPS. I rely on a map and doing lots of homework before I go, and um, looking at the terrain. So you don't have to rely on the technology, and you do have to know how to do basic navigation without the technology in case it fails, because we can't always get the coverage that we need to use the likes of GPS. So good question. Uh, now question number two from Island School, please. 
Hi, my name is Meta, and my question is, how accurate is echo sounding, and how do you actually calculate it? For example, how much time passes between the sound and the echo for a depth of 100 meters? Oh, that's a really good question, and I can see that you've been reading the background pages, so well done for that. I think that's a Brad question, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a Brad question, and uh, there's a short and long answer to it. There are many things that affect how accurate echo sounding is. Uh, the sound wave itself, so that has a resolution that's in the centimetre level, so if it's a higher frequency, like a shallow wave, a higher frequency, it's um, something like a centimetre, but if it's a lower frequency in the deep water, it goes to about 10 centimetres. Um, then you've also got the two-way time of travel through uh, the water column, which is the water is a body which speed travels at 1,500 metres per second. If the water's a bit warmer, then it travels a bit faster, and if the water's a bit colder, then it travels a bit slower. So you need to accurately understand what the water column, and then there's also tide as well. You have to account for the fact that the tides are going up and down at the same time that you're doing your sounding operations. So you take away tide and uh, get it to the lowest possible point so it can go to the charts and be as safe as possible for boats. Yeah, and Brad actually showed us the old-fashioned way of finding depth yesterday using a lead line. And that's still used today, Brad? Yes, yeah, I think I mentioned yesterday that uh, we still use it to check some of our surveys because, uh, as I mentioned before, there's quite a few factors that go into calculating a depth with an echo sounder. So it's really nice to compare it against something where you can't really go wrong with the, with the lead line. So, yeah, good checks. Yeah, so if you're curious about that lead line, check out the video from yesterday um, where you can see how you could measure the depth of water yourself using um, a line with marked metres on it and a weight so that it can go down straight straight down in the water to the bottom as long as it's not too deep because otherwise you need a long line. So you can imagine that you'd only want to do um, a few lead line measurements to compare with your echo sounding, otherwise it would take you. Forever. Sore arms. <laughs> yes, you would get very sore arms. Thanks, Brad. And now, question um, three from Matilda Primary School, please. Hi, my name is Clint. Um, why do people use paper charts as well as electronic charts? That is a good question. We've got all this technology. Why do we still need the paper stuff? Um, Paper charts are on the way out, so uh, electronic charts are taking over from paper charts. Uh, nowadays, uh, vessels are allowed to navigate solely with electronic charts as long as you have two systems. So paper charts are still around. They're, they're lovely. They've served uh, the maritime area well for many years, but uh, their days are numbered. They're on the way out. Mm, uh, and if you like like maps and you want to find out more about your maritime area, you might still want a paper chart to look at on your wall, sure. but on your vessel, you're probably going to rely on an Small boats still, still use quite a lot as well. So the small yep. boats are very interested in paper charts still because they, they can't have those computer systems on board. So, uh, But as technology improves, they'll get computers more easily and adopt electronic charts. Right. So you might have been on a vessel that still uses paper charts and it being a, a smaller vessel, be relying on those paper charts still for a, for a while, I'd imagine. Good question. And now it's time for question number three from Island School, please. What? 
<laughs> How do marine navigation, hello, my name is Soren. How do marine navigation techniques vary between night and day? Oh, good question, Soren. Um, so between night and day, navigation, how does it, how does it change? Uh, basically, um, in the nighttime, you don't have the same visual cues that you have in the, in the daytime. So um, nighttime navigation, still use all the same equipment, but some of the visual cues are missing. So um, it's harder, it's more difficult at night. So Chris, can you tell us about the, the lights that people might have seen um, out in harbours at night, um, some, some different coloured ones? Sure, so as a boost to help navigation at night time, uh, there's lots of uh, lights that are used in harbours um, to uh, help vessels navigate safely at night. So um, they have all like different flashing patterns or different colours so that mariners can instantly recognise exactly which one they're looking at. Thanks Chris. And now we're up to question four from Matoda Primary School, please. Hi, my name is Nevaeh, and where do people go to learn how to use things like the azimuth circle, study meter, or radar? Good question, because I have no idea about those things. So obviously you've been doing lots of homework about what is used. Yes. Sure, so um, people come to schools like this one here to study um, those, how to use those pieces of uh, maritime equipment. Uh, so we have, uh, again, simulated radar and uh, simulated uh, compasses, gyro compasses that uh, the uh, people who want to drive ships come here and learn all about them. So for those that don't know, those things that they've asked about, um, can you explain more about what they are? <laughs> um, so um, um, all vessels, uh, large vessels have to have uh, radar So radar is um, um, sound waves being um, sent out And um, gives you a, like a, a map image of uh, where you are And you can um, The azimuth circle is used for um, taking bearings on uh, objects You can take visual um, bearings using the azimuth circle, and I'm not sure what the other one is. I'm sorry, I don't recognise that name at all. Steady meter is an older, an older tool used to uh, measure the distance between things. Uh, so it uh, relies on the principles of trigonometry. It's a pretty obsolete bit of technology now, but it was used um, you know, for, for the last 50 years. Well, so lots of learning today. Lots of vocabulary that you can do your own research on as well. And I had never heard of those things myself. So thanks for explaining that, guys. And now we're up to question four from Island School, please. If you're using... Hello, my name is Connor. If you're using radio technology, I think storms and cloudy weather could create interference. Please explain if this is so or not. Great question. And I hear that you've made your own radio, so I can see why you'd be interested and a shoe like that that can affect the quality of radio sound that you hear? Um, so um, usually uh, in the maritime area, uh, they use uh, what's called a VHF radio uh, for general communications. And um, it can be affected slightly by uh, weather conditions, but one of the advantages of using it 
is that it generally is okay in most conditions. So there you go, pretty reliable. And now question number five from Matoda Primary School, please. And my name is Keisha. How do you get a job on a big shipping container? Mm, good question. That'd be an interesting job on one of those massive ships. You have to come to a school like this one and um, do a uh, cadetship and, and learn to um, learn all the navigation skills you need. It takes uh, maybe uh, uh, a year and a half's training at a school like this one and then you can be a uh, officer on a, on a container ship. And Chris, I imagine there's other jobs on a container ship as well where you don't have the responsibility for perhaps piloting the vessel. Um, lots of other jobs available? Uh, sure. There's also uh, engineers who look after the uh, engineering systems and then there's uh, deck crew who uh, maybe um, do uh, a few weeks training to prepare them for uh, doing maintenance and things on the vessel rather than navigating it. Excellent. And our last question from Island School, please. Hello, my name is Tristan, and how do you actually make nautical charts from um, the information you get from multi-beams? Tristan? Uh, that's a very good question. So one of the products of the multi-beam is you get a big 3D picture of the seabed. Um, at the end, we call that a digital elevation model. And after we get that, what we do is we put it through software. And what we do with that software is we generalize things a little bit because not every rock can go onto the chart. We have to be smart about what, what rocks can go on the charts at different scales. Otherwise, the chart will be really, really large. So uh, what we do is we take a risk averse or um, we just we just make sure it's uh, the worst case scenarios displayed on the chart, how shallow it is. And uh, the, the software we use will generate contours and uh, then we can display depths of a certain uh, resolution for that chart scale. And if you have a look at my diary from yesterday, you'll see a link there to a survey that was done um, in collaboration between the Marlborough Council and Land Information New Zealand, and it looks at the methods that they use to survey the seafloor. So really interesting. Check out the video that's uh, on that website. Okay, so well done, Matoto Primary School and Island School. Great quality questions this morning, and fantastic to see that you've been uh, doing your own research and reading those background pages. Well done. Keep up the good work. So we've now got time to answer questions from our listening school. Uh, you can pop down to the chat bubble at the bottom of your screen, click on that, and open the chat window, and uh, probably your teacher will be the one typing in your questions, and Barry in the Learns office uh, will tell us what questions we need to answer. Barry? Yep, I'm ready. Uh, I'm just looking down for the first one. Why are the seven, this is from room 16 at, I presume at Ferguson, why are the seven sisters all together called Matariki? Oh, wow. There is lots of information about this on the, the background page called Matariki. And the seven sisters, some, some Māori iwi thought of uh, Matariki as seven sisters, or um, Matariki being uh, the mother and the seven daughters. But other iwi didn't. 
Um, but Matariki itself means uh, eyes of God or little eyes. And you can read the legend that goes with that that's on the background page. So that's something that you can, you can have a look at and find out more about. So I presume the next question about why is Matariki a Maori myth is also sort of covered on there, but presumably the, they looked up in the heavens the same way we did and wondered, and um, they noticed that star cluster there and that when it appeared um, was important to them. Um, is that your understanding, Kelly? Yeah, so if you have a look on the background page, there is a description of the story behind Matariki. I'm just um, trying to find it here myself so that I can tell you because it's quite a good little description. If you bear with me. So I've got the website behind me. I'm actually on the diary, but in those background pages I'm pointing to but I'm, I'm with my finger, there'll be a Matariki page. Yeah, so according to myth, the children of Ranganui, the sky father, and Papatuanuku, the earth mother, separated their parents. The god of the winds, Tatari Matia, was so angry that he tore out his eyes and threw them into the heavens. So hence the name Little Eyes or Eyes of God um, is Matariki. So that's the legend behind it. And Matariki is significant because it marks the Māori New Year. And you can find out more about the Māramataka, the Māori Lunar Calendar, and how it's different from the European calendar that we use. So have a read of that page. Thanks. And we also talked a little bit more about that um, in yesterday and the day before's web conference. So also from Room 16 at Ferguson, when Captain Cook arrived in New Zealand, what did he first discover? I mean, we talked yesterday about the first thing he named was young Nick's head. But I wonder what he discovered first that was unusual to him. Hmm. Brad, do you have any ideas there? <laughs> I just thought it was young Nick's head. Uh, yeah, I'm not too sure what, what events followed exactly afterwards. Uh, we'll have to Google it. Yeah, and, and through research, you'll be able to see um, what Abel Tasman discovered before Captain Cook, and then um, the discoveries, of course, that Māori made prior to that. So you've got to think about what order things happened in and who discovered what. Um, certainly Captain Cook was not the first person here by any means and for hundreds of years Māori had been making discoveries of their own about Aotearoa and sharing those through oral histories and then Abel Tasman came along, didn't actually land on Aotearoa and then Captain Cook, three voyages here, so lots of discoveries. Um, one thing that I noticed being out at Meritoto yesterday, Ship Cove, um, where Captain Cook spent a lot of time on his voyages, nice sheltered bay. Um, we could hear lots of birds. And uh, that was great because for a while, there haven't been birds in that area until um, locals and Department of Conservation have been working on controlling predators. But I remember reading stories about Cook um, discovering all his bird life in Aotearoa. And, there were complaints from the crew that they couldn't sleep because of the noise of the dawn chorus of all the birds and they'd, they'd take their ship further away from the bay 
sometimes so that people get sleep because the birds were so noisy. So just imagine the bird life and there would have been birds that have since sadly become extinct. So an amazing country which has changed a great deal since the time that Cook arrived. So you can do your own research on on what it might have been like back then and maybe some of the discoveries that, that Cook and his crew made. Thanks. Um, another one from Ferguson, just working down in order, Isabel and Dijan would like to know if, in your opinion, GPS is better than the old ways. And I think we know the answer to that. Fred, we'll start with you. What's your opinion of GPS? GPS, GPS is more accurate than the old ways. Um, but to say it's better, I mean, uh, that's another question entirely. The, uh, the GPS can easily be turned off and uh, you can lose power and all of a sudden you're, uh, you're dead in the water, so to speak. So uh, GPS is perhaps more reliable. Uh, sorry, the old ways are perhaps more reliable than GPS. Um, the other thing with GPS is that it can go down or it can become unreliable and therefore the old ways can get, uh, get better. So, uh, yeah, go both ways. And Chris? Sure. Uh, GPS is um, easy. It's um, an easy option. Gives you instant uh, information. Uh, the old ways, um, the navigator had to work a whole lot harder and um, in, in some ways was better because you worked harder and you had to use your brain more. But um, GPS is a pretty lazy way, unfortunately. But it's what we have. Yeah, um, we can all now just use our phone and ask Google Maps to tell us where to go, type in an address, and I must admit, I find that very helpful on field trips when I'm going to new places and trying to meet up with people um, in a short period of time. I don't have to break out the old paper map and, and think about which way is north and orientating my map and all that sort of thing. But um, sometimes when you're out of coverage, you've got to go back to the old ways. So it's not something that we... Um, should forget how to do and, and learn our own basic navigation, sense of direction, thinking about where we are in the world rather than just relying on the, the phone to tell us. It's a very good question. Right, thanks. And we did talk yesterday too that um, people who weren't here yesterday, you might be reassured to know that um, a lot of ship captains know how to use the old ways as well as the new GPS. Um, if from room 16 at FIS, if you used a sextant or another marine device, which device would be the most accurate? Now I presume that's excluding electronic devices like GPS. Hmm, Brad, any ideas there? Um, yeah, excluding GPS, uh, sextant is quite accurate. Uh, there are other ways that you can measure that vertical angle. Um, you know, like survey, modern day surveyors still use satellites to uh, get angles, but of course you can't easily use those on a boat. So uh, yeah, that's about all the ideas I've got on sextants. How accurate are other uses for sextants? Other technology there? Cool. Uh, sextants uh, used to only have an accuracy look to um, um, maybe um, you could end up being maybe a nautical mile away from uh, where you uh, were expecting to be. Uh, uh, nowadays, we expect much better accuracy than that. And so technology such as GPS gives us awesome accuracy and um, don't have to worry about it quite so much. So definitely uh, the more modern ways are more accurate for sure. 
Yeah, and I guess when the weather is good and you can see the uh, terrain around you, um, it doesn't matter so much, but in fog and that sort of thing, fantastic to be able to have the likes of the accuracy of GPS. Any other questions this morning? Yep, plenty. We won't get through them all, but uh, Nina from HCS School, how do you become a captain of a navigation ship, or I presume of a big ship that because um, all ships require navigation. Mm, right down to your little vessels. So a big big ship, Chris, what kind of um, career pathways are we talking about? How long might it take? Sure. So um, it might take uh, around uh, four years to become a, a captain. Um, so um, you need to spend a couple of years as a um, uh, an officer, a, a junior officer, and then... Um, and a year in school for a year in school, the nautical school for that, and also then an additional year to become a captain. Uh, so it's a combination of both uh, some time at sea, they call it sea time, so that's experience on the job, and also uh, a year in school. So two years in school and two years at sea to become a captain. Good to know. And if you wanted to become a captain of a little ship, um, like a sailing ship, you can get a boatmaster certificate, I believe. Uh, yes, you can. Um, uh, Coast Guard offers um, qualifications in um, small boats. Um, one of those is uh, Boatmaster. Or if you just like to drive small uh, launches like um, tourist launches in something like um, the Marlborough Sounds or uh, in Auckland Harbour or Bay of Islands, uh, then you do something called uh, a skipper restricted limit. So that might be maybe a five week course to get that kind of qualification and, and some experience too, some time but only a few months. So it depends what size boat you want to end up driving, how long you have to spend training. Yep. yep. Thanks. Cool. Um, said in school, would like, room three and four would like to know how many different navigation tools did Captain Cook use? Oh, that is a, a good question. Brad, any ideas? Yeah, a few. Uh, so he would have used the compass as a navigation tool to see his uh, bearing to different objects and to measure the bearing of his ship for the purpose of dead reckoning. Uh, he used a sextant or a quant, a quadrant, to uh, measure the uh, angle between celestial bodies like the sun and the stars. Uh, he also used telescopes when he went ashore um, to do observations. So he used that to get a very accurate fix, uh, something he couldn't do while the boat was moving. Um, so he could determine his latitude and longitude very accurately using a telescope from an observation tent ashore and then carry that through to his stuff on the boat. Uh, what else did he use here? In his later voyages, he also used the chronometer, which uh, we briefly touched on yesterday, which was uh, to use the reference time against your local noon observations to determine longitude. So a chronometer sounds like a big fancy word, but it's actually just a watch. <laughs> It's a very accurate watch, very though, watch. and that in those days was hard to come by. They just didn't have very accurate watches. And, of course, they were really delicate instruments, and being on a rolling boat, they just didn't stay accurate. They were disturbed by that movement. So coming up with an accurate chronometer really helped Captain Cook, especially with finding long longitude. And you can find out more about that on the background pages, how he found latitude and then the more challenging how he found longitude so that he could not only chart New Zealand's coastline but find out where it was in relation to everything else in the world and so New Zealand's position in the world. 
Yes, if you Google the problem of longitude and look in the history, I think there was a man called John Harrison who came up with the first clock that would work at sea and was a, a major help and stopped ships running aground. Uh, moving on, um, to skip one here, but gone to Conrad Island, how would a major earthquake affect the topography under the sea? And do you have a local example? Uh, that is a very good question. And there's been not only earthquakes up this way, but um, experienced myself the earthquakes down in Christchurch, and I know that had a big effect on the port, Brad. Yes, so uh, earthquakes do affect the uh, topography beneath the sea. We call that bathymetry. Um, so when it's below the water, we call it bathymetry, but the topography of the sea is another way of explaining it. Uh, so in particular, Kaikoura was a uh, bad one for raising the seabed. That was very famous in the news headlines where we saw uh, shellfish washing up uh, above the drying line. So uh, the sea level there raised, in some cases, uh, two or three metres. Um, in other areas, it was up to seven metres. So uh, a large earthquake can create a lot of disturbance, and um, particularly around ports, it's very, uh, very important that, that we measure that difference, that, dif that uh, depth at the end of the day after the earthquake. It's changed quite a lot. Mm, and you can even get landslides on the seafloor? That's right. And uh, one of the surveys we did recently was off White Island. Now, that's quite a... Uh, volcanically uh, active area, so there was a bit of disturbance there where uh, a rock slide fell onto the seafloor and that uh, would have altered things by, by many metres. A large amount of dirt fell in. Mm. Thanks very much. So um, we've got one from Moana Tai Ari. What would you do if someone fell overboard? So I presume this is in part of your captain's training um, uh, in your simulator, yeah? Sure. So, um, yes, um, I have some students here right now today that will be doing that very thing. So they have to do something called a Williamson turn. That means you uh, have to turn the ship around and go back to the person in the water. Uh, yep. Uh, it's part of the training. And in the simulator, we can put a person in the water and they um, can turn the boat around and go back and um, then be stopped and uh, hopefully pick them up. And I, I remember when we were on the Spirit of New Zealand as a field trip, we um, had to go through that drill and we didn't actually throw anyone overboard, but we did throw a dummy overboard and went through that drill of turning around and picking them up. And, and it's, it's not so easy to pick up something from the water from a, a high boat like the Spirit of New Zealand. So worth practising. Um, but hopefully you're not the dummy that has to go overboard. It's also very hard to see someone when they go into the water like that. So that's why uh, when you're doing that drill, there's always someone pointing at where that person is the whole time because the captain has to turn the boat around so he's looking elsewhere. So uh, someone has to always point, otherwise you lose sight of the person. And in the water, you can, you can uh, lose people very easily. Mm. So uh, very important to keep watch. Yeah, indeed. Good point. Thanks. Room 22 at Pukakui School, Hill School would like to know, does GPS show if there are big waves or storms nearby? Anyone like to answer that one? Uh, the answer to that one is yes. Uh, so there are, we use uh, GPS buoys to uh, measure uh, meteor meteorological effects like, uh, like swell and sea height. And uh, quite often these boys are scattered out in the ocean recording things for, for the meteorologists and their forecasting. Uh, we also use GPS to measure the heave of a boat. 
Um, so that's one of the factors that affects the accuracy of a sounding measurement. You have to account for the fact that the vessel's going up and down with the waves in a vertical motion. So the GPS is measuring that as well. So uh, GPS is very accurate and it uh, comes in at many rates per second. So it can capture that up and down of the swells quite accurately. Fantastic. And time for a couple more questions. Um, Oscar at Ireland would like to know who, in your opinion, would be the figurative father of modern navigation? Or mother, but I think it's probably a father. Probably father, just because it happened a long time ago. And maybe it would have happened sooner if a mother was involved. Who knows? But do we have a father of navigation? Modern navigation is what they're asking. Uh, it's, probably, it's probably a case of uh, many people working hard to uh, come up with things. Uh, Albert Einstein was an instrumental of the, the GPS network because it has to account for relativity. Maybe, so maybe he was part of it. And there's a whole lot of other physicists involved in the formation of the GPS constellation. So it's hard, hard to say. Many people are involved. Mm, like any good technology, lots of brains have helped to create it and hard to pinpoint exactly who um, started that um, progression of skills and technology. Interesting question though. Emma at Island would like to know how many years did it take to move from a single beam to a multi-beam for surveying the seabed and what's maybe what's the advantage of a multi-beam? Hmm, Brad. It's quite a good question. Uh, so single beams sort of came about uh, 1910. Um, Shackleton's first sort of voyage down to Antarctica caught, had a, what they called a fathometer, which was basically a, a, a first single beams that were created and they used it to sound the depths and find out just how deep the water was below them when they were stuck in the ice. Um, go fast forward to 1980, that's when the first sort of multi-beam started to come about. And multi-beam relies heavily on computing technology to do all its calculations. It's to do a lot of uh, maths and a lot of calculations on the fly. So what they had a lot of ideas about how a multi-beam could work all those years while they're using single beam from 1910 to 1980, but the computers were needed to make it all happen. So they came in in the late 80s and uh, multi-beam's been around ever since. So the benefit of uh, multi-beam these days is it gets complete coverage across the seafloor. So with single beam, if you went along and drove your lines 50 metres apart, there was a chance that maybe a rock was 25 metres to the side and you miss seeing that in a single beam. But now with the multi-beam, you can see the whole lot and you can see exactly what dangers are out there. And uh, you know for sure that you can take a boat through that area after multi-beam speed through there. Really interesting. So again, technology helping to improve um, maritime navigation and safety. I think that's about all the questions we've got time for this morning. I know there'll be lots of other burning questions, but that's what this field trip is all about. Um, you know, curiosity and then going further and inquiring yourself. So lots of things that no doubt you can research yourself after being involved in this field trip. So it's been a pleasure talking to everyone this morning. Um, I've been seeing lots of waves from people, so great to have you this morning. And I saw the ambassadors, Bob, that have been on field trips before, Bob and Bob Jr., so big shout out to them. It's always been nice to have them on field trips. Hopefully they can join us on more field trips later on this year. And remember, uh, there is the Map My Wahi field trip coming up, which 
is tackling some of um, the topics that we've tackled this week as well. And you can learn about how to share your own stories on Story Maps. So you can join us on that field trip. Um, but thank you very much to everybody that's been involved this week. I hope you've learned a lot and enjoyed the field trip and can join us on another one soon. So now uh, we'll all unmute our microphones and say a big goodbye. Ka kite on all. I can do it for you. I'm muting all now. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.